ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Sarah Percy is back on Conversations today. In her new book, she presents a note, a note that was written after the Battle of Waterloo, where Napoleon famously met his final defeat. Now, when you think of Waterloo, you think of lines of brave men in red coats and blue coats advancing through the cannon smoke and musket fire. But after Waterloo, a British sergeant major noted that, quote, many women were found among the slain. As is common in the camp, the camp followers wore male attire with nearly as martial a bearing as the soldiers. Now you read that and you think, what? Masses of women killed on the battlefront in uniforms? How on earth did that happen? Well, we have many examples of women warriors in history and in legend, women who are willing to pick up a sword or a gun to kill or wound, to fight and die. But they're seen as interlopers in what must necessarily be a male domain. It's men who have the physical strength. Men are said to be more disposed towards violence and they're believed to have the necessary valour to fight and die if need be for a country or a cause. Sarah Percy is an historian and international relations specialist who's written military histories, and she's looked at the record and amassed evidence that shows that women have always been present on the battlefield in different guises. Sarah says that women have been willing to come under fire to fight and kill with swords and guns, sometimes to protect hearth and home, and sometimes because the life suited them. Sarah Percy's book is called Forgotten Warriors. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. Hi, Richard. Your book begins with the story of a Viking grave that was discovered in Sweden. Tell me about this grave and what was found alongside the body. So the grave was the most perfect example of a Viking warrior grave. It had horses, it had armor, it had weapons. It had all of the accoutrement that you would expect to go with a very high-status warrior. And in fact, everybody just looked at the warrior, labeled the grave, and then kind of forgot about it, other than its status as a very impressive warrior's grave. Until sometime in the 1970s, people took a closer look at the skeleton, and somebody said, well, hang on, that actually looks like a women's skeleton. But again... People didn't really do much about it. And then the early 2000s and the 2000s roll on and and, uh, our advances in DNA technology improve and somebody analyzes the skeleton and finds conclusively that it is a female skeleton. So over, well over 100 years, people had been assuming that this was the quintessential warrior's grave. All of a sudden, all of these people were like, well, it's not a warrior at all. Couldn't possibly be a warrior if it's a woman in the grave. And the archaeologists who did the study got sort of very heated about this because there was absolutely no evidence that it wasn't a warrior. The only possible explanation for this woman's body in the grave is that she was the warrior. And people had just never occurred to them to look deeper or to understand or even believe it was possible for women to be warriors. Co wrote a book about the Icelandic Vikings some years ago, and I was often asked about were there shield maidens? Yes, there were. They were few in number from what we know. This is what I've read from the record. But you would find women's graves where women Vikings would be buried, sometimes with female, traditionally female grave goods, but quite often with spears as well. You could infer from the graves, women were used to holding a spear for hunting and for killing as well. And, you know, archaeological evidence is open to interpretation because it's not just the Vikings where you find graves of women who have experienced violence. But the presumption has often been that the women are the victims of the violence, not the inflictors of the violence. But if you look at it with a slightly different lens, (laughs) sometimes you might realise actually that spear isn't just being used for hunting. You know, that spear indicates a certain martial capability that maybe people were ignoring. You say that this isn't really about the discovery of secret, vast legions of women serving in big continental armies and the like, 
But you do say that women have always been willing to walk into the combat zone. Now, much depends here on what we mean by the word combat, doesn't it? It definitely does. So we think that we all know what military combat would look like. But very often, over periods of time, combat has been what men have determined it to be. And whatever it is, it's something that prevents women from doing it. So, for example, siege warfare, you get lots of women fighting in siege warfare. But that's often not considered to be, quote-unquote, proper combat. And that really begins to rear its head in the 20th century when women are legally barred from fighting. So therefore, you have to define exactly what you mean by fighting. And you get all of these quite Baroque manipulations of the rules. So you get somebody who's a carpenter, and that constitutes being a combatant. But a woman who's armed and driving a truck isn't a combatant. But if you put both of those people in the field, one of them is probably going to end up fighting and one of them probably isn't. So you definitely have this manipulation of the definition of combat. And I think a significant part of that manipulation is actually about keeping women out of combat. The several arguments that are often advanced to justify the idea that warfare is very much a male domain, often referred to male physical strength. But also, you just don't see women very often starting pub brawls, for example. Men do seem to have a greater inclination towards violence than women. What do you make of that? Well, I think you can break them down into two. I think the physical argument is actually really easy to dismiss, which is you set physical standards and you see who can meet them. And one of the puzzles that I started to get intrigued by is why you didn't set that test more often. So why was the test say, well, we have these physical standards. We don't think any of you ladies are going to meet them. Why don't we let them give it a try? And the answer is because actually plenty of women do meet the physical standards. I think the other thing to note is it's very unlikely that some of our greatest generals were Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? <laughs> like the, the ability to be big and strong isn't necessarily what you need on the battlefield. Not every single one of your soldiers needs to be some type of he-man. You have to have smart ones. You have to have people who are cunning. You have to have people who maneuver around the battlefield with sort of dexterity and cleverness. And of course, the other thing is plenty of boys in pre-20th century armies. So the idea that is a physically strong thing, I think, is kind of a fallacy, actually. And then in terms of the appetite for fighting, look, I think, bluntly, some humans have an appetite for fighting. Lots of humans don't have an appetite for fighting. But whether or not that's spread evenly across genders, it's really hard to know the degree to which that's socialization and the degree to which that's innate. And again, why wouldn't you give, particularly by the time we're into the 70s and 80s and gender equality is becoming the norm, why wouldn't you give people the chance to see if they had that appetite in them rather than just assume that they do not? History is full of examples of women generals, women commanders, women empresses, women queens who have sent armies in to fight and die, and they've succeeded or failed. And I'm thinking of women like Elizabeth I and Maria Theresa of Austria. How often do we see this, Sarah? We see queens in command in their own right quite often. Usually it's by an accident or quirk, right? So usually they're acting as regent because they have a son who's too young to rule. Sometimes it's because they've got a husband who's off fighting and sometimes inheritance quirks. That's how you end up with Elizabeth I, for example, where it's unusual, but it does happen. And just like any other reigning monarch, a queen, as would a king, is expected to take overall command of planning of the military with the assistance of advisors and things like that. And some of them get really into it. So Maria Theresa of Austria, she gets really into it. She redesigns the whole uh, military academy system. She realizes that all of her regiments are doing things completely differently from each other. And she notices correctly that this lack of standardization is a big problem. So she institutes standardization, all the while, by the way, having 13 children. You've got the example of Boudicca, who we used to know as Bodicea and the like. Tell me how shocked the Romans were by her leading her tribe of Britons, the Iceni, in revolt against the Romans. It was a completely bizarre spectacle for the Romans that a woman would have this capability. And it was a sign for them of just how barbarous the Iceni were. These are people who are totally without the normal rules and structures of society, so much so that they're prepared or to allow a, whim, a woman to lead them into combat. And so they are deeply shocked by it. And in fact, the, the retribution that they take after Boudicca's defeat is is much more than they would have ordinarily taken. And it's probably because they have this, this knee-jerk reaction to being defeated all along the way several times by Boudicca in front of all of these troops. Joan of Arc, 
The legend of Joan of Arc as an inspirational leader, as a, a visionary. What do we make of her as a military leader, though, Sarah? Well, military historians have actually looked at Joan of Arc's experience and the, what she's doing in combat, because, of course, we actually have quite remarkably extensive records of what happened in Joan's life and found that she was clearly an expert in gunpowder warfare. So that's the cutting edge technology of the day, but it's the technology of the common people. And so military historian's explanation for Joan is that she was a common person herself. So unlike the high-born lords who were around her, she may have actually just listened to the cannoneers and the men using gunpowder warfare and therefore been able to apply it. But for her contemporaries, there was no explanation for why she should be so good at combat other than magic. So if you were the English, you thought she was a witch. And if you were the French, you thought that the magic was divinely granted by God. There was no one who looked at her and took her seriously and said, well, actually, maybe she is a 19-year-old military genius. The explanation had to be magic. In the 17th century, women were often present on the battlefield in Europe, but they were often described, as was mentioned in that military note, as camp followers. Now, I think in the past, people have read into that term camp followers to mean like camp prostitutes or something. What's the true story of who these female camp followers were, Sarah? Well, the camp followers are actually women. One historian, John Lynn, calls them the campaign community, but they are women who are actually integral to the running of the military. So for a considerable period of time, from the 16th century, probably to halfway through the 19th century, armies couldn't go to war without women providing essential logistic services. So some of those services were definitely sex, but there were also things like laundry, nursing, and crucially provisioning. So these are armies that don't have the capability to provision themselves. So you get your stuff that you need to survive one of two ways. You, you pillage it and you steal it, and that takes time. So you need people who can do that while your soldiers are fighting. And you can have people selling it. So a lot of continental European armies have a formalized system in France. They call it cantiniere and vivandiere of women who sell food and drink and other essential things actually on the battlefield. And I think the other thing that's interesting about followers is followers implies that they're moving at a distance, which they're totally not. These are women who are on the battlefield. They are in the thick of the fighting. They are there providing these essential services. And they're doing all sorts of things that, that 20th century observers find it very difficult to believe that women are capable of doing. So they have to be really brave to be out there. They have to be extremely strong. They're dragging around carts full of goods to sell. They're pillaging. They're doing all kinds of things. So again, it's a classic dismissal, which I see over and over again when you look at this history, to look at them all and say, well, they must be whores. Are you seeing stories of women carrying food and water right up to the men in the front line, walking through gunfire and arrow fire, if you like, going right up to the front line of battle? Absolutely. So the provision of water is actually really important on battlefields because uh, heat kills people. So if they are dehydrated in the middle of a fight, they will actually die. So the ability to provide food and drink and not to mention liquid courage to soldiers at the front was essential. So it was absolutely bringing it right to the front. Also, a lot of gunpowder weapons require water uh, to tamp things down and to be used. So the cannoneers need a ready supply of water and women would bring that right to the front. And we have really countless stories of men who were shooting an artillery piece falling and their wife or their partner or some woman just standing up and taking their place and carrying on the firing of the gun. Really picking up the weapon and firing away yeah. in the place of the, their men who have been, been shot down. How do the men tend to write about these women? In a very ordinary matter-of-fact kind of way, as you would write about around any woman you, anything that you saw on the battlefield as a part of a matter of course. So they're just an absolutely ordinary part of what it means to be at war. I think if you're fighting, though, and the woman's walked through fire to come up to you and bring you food and water, you'd feel this incredible debt of, debt of gratitude. Do they write with gratitude about these women? We have often people writing about particularly women who, who do that take place at the gun, but also women in general just saying how it would have been impossible to continue without them, that they were every bit as valorous as the men were around them, that they were actually, again, sort of a normal, ordinary, expected part of warfare. So that you get maybe fewer comments than you might think about their bravery and excellence because it was just expected that they would be both brave and excellent. Oh, okay. So it's nothing remarkable. Then. Yeah. It's, it's just ordinary. Did wives often accompany soldiers in this pre-modern form of warfare? 
Yes. So we have both informal and formal wives, by which I mean in the earlier part of this period from that 16th century period, maybe through to the through to the late 18th century, there are just lots of women on the battlefield and they may enter into marriages and they may not. Um, there's a lot of hereditariness about it. So people will start a family, their kids, the boys will become soldiers, the girls will follow in their mother's footsteps. But by the late 18th century, we start to see formal rules about people bringing their wives, including officers, as well as enlisted men. So usually there are rules set as to how many wives a regiment can support. So when the British go off to fight in North America through the um, all of those revolutionary wars and later on, there are specific rules about how many women a regiment can bring with them. And those women are deemed to be under military discipline, and they are deemed to be, in effect, part of the regiment. So again, these are women who end up, they're not sitting around having a cup of tea at the Battle of Monmouth or whatever. They're, they're at the front, they're, they're nursing, they're bringing their husbands essential provisions. They are crucial to the running of the regiment. And you see that in the British Army as late as the Crimean War. And there's a scandal in the Crimean War because the conditions where the wives are living are full of illness and you get lots of people sick. And Florence Nightingale really disapproves of these women and considers them all to be whores. And a lot of that disreputable reputation actually comes from Florence Nightingale and Crimea and the big shift which occurs after that, where it's suddenly no longer possible for wives to accompany their husbands. Were women sometimes subject to military discipline in these camps? Absolutely. So we have lots of examples of women who are flogged because they were caught doing something like stealing. We have women who are banned from continuing to follow the regiment, who write beseeching letters to regimental commanders saying things like, I've always been a good member of the regiment. I've always brought water out to the battlefield. I've always done all the things that you've expected of me, but I've made this one mistake. Please, would you let me carry on supporting the regiment? In some of the most bestial wars, like the Thirty Years' War, for example, they are often accompanied by campaigns, if you like, of mass rape. What did the presence of wives and women on the battlefield uh, within the military camps in the regiments do for incidences of mass rape? Were they, more, were they less likely as a result of having women present? Certainly the theory, as horrible as it sounds, is that if you have women present, your military is less likely to go on a rampage and rape and pillage the countryside. There is also, it sounds ridiculous to say, but but rape is militarily inefficient, right? So that actually, by the time your soldiers are committing rape to that degree, they're not actually fighting. That explains why most militaries do have a regularized form of prostitution in this period, because the idea is it's going to cut down on that sort of unregulated type of sexual rampage. But the other thing to note about this is being a civilian woman in Europe during the Thirty Years' War, it's probably hard to imagine a worse place to be a civilian woman. So women were often safer in the military than they were out of the military. There is a big incentive to be part of this community, which is going to look after you. So it was safer for a woman to be in the military very often in these fights? Absolutely. For many women, that life would have been a nightmare, being a camp follower. But do you get a sense that some women thrived on the life? I think that many women thrived on the life because don't forget, think about what the alternatives are. Yes, for some women, it might have been awful. But either, as we said before, it's safer being in the military than being out of it. But that's also true if you're from a really dangerous big city. So if you're a 15-year-old girl on the streets of London, are you better off running off and joining the army? Are you better off being a 15-year-old girl on the streets of London? And I think the other thing is, is that when we assume that women camp followers are victims, we deny them the agency of being adventurers. And it's very clear that many of them were adventurers. They wanted to live a life that was free of the sort of constraint that women faced, either from physical danger or from social mores or from any of those sorts of things that would restrict a woman's life So being on the battlefield was a space of freedom, just as it was for men. So is your argument here then that this idea that the battlefield is not a space for women is a way of denying women the valour of men, denying women the courage of men, denying women the same sense of adventure as men? Yes, I absolutely began to be more and more convinced about this as I began to write the book and and worked my way through the book, that, that women are... 
not often given the opportunity to show that they have the same degree of valor as men. And when they are given the opportunity, they show it. But keeping them off the battlefield is a remarkably efficient way of reminding women that they are inferior. And particularly as time moves on and we get more through the 20th century and the feminist movement begins to take hold, in effect, what we're saying to women when we ban them from combat is saying, well, the feminist movement tells you you can do everything the same as men, or except, by the way, except this one thing. This one thing, which also, by the way, happens to be one of the most crucial ways we measure physical courage, fortitude, and leadership. You can't do that. You're too weak, and men have to do it for you. You mentioned sieges there. If you look hard enough, you see women in just about all the major sieges. Well, in fact, every one of them, actually, that I can think of. I don't even think you have to look that hard. You don't have to look hard at all. (laughs) Women are there on the walls every day throwing rocks at the enemy. They're risking arrow fire. They're risking cannon fire. And they're pouring boiling oil on the enemy as well. Tell me more about the role of women in siege warfare as you see it. Well, women in siege warfare are incredibly common. Siege warfare is about, for a significant chunk of military history, it's about 10 times more common than a pitched battle that you would see on a battlefield. About 10 times more common. Yeah. Mm. So where you would see, that's the kind that we think of as not having women in it, that battlefield where you have all male armies facing off. Not only are women chucking rocks and boiling oil, they're picking up axes and chopping off people's arms as they're trying to scale the walls. And they're also dying in defense of the city too. And dying in considerable numbers. So being in a besieged city was hugely dangerous, which is probably part of the reason people didn't look askance at the idea of women defending the city because the fate of a city that fell to the besiegers was was devastating. But we have huge examples, again, of physical fortitude, of courage, of taking the initiative. And if you were a highborn lady, particularly in the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries, you would often be in command of your household and your household would get besieged. So we have examples of this from both sides of the English Civil War, where the the, the husband was off at the front and the woman had to take command of the house. Being a lady in charge of a grand house, that would obviously mean you'd have to run the servants, make sure everyone had bedding and make sure there was food, but also know that you had enough shot, know that you had enough gunpowder, know where that was stored and begin to take command. So we have these two quite famous English Civil War examples of women leading sieges that last for many, many weeks and are absolutely in command of the troops around the house, directing them, making strategic decisions about when and where to fight. We often have in our modern imagination of what a battlefield looks like, of being this very all-male space where the wives and girlfriends are at home sort of weeping quietly. And one of the things that I really want to bring forward is that that's actually not the case. This is a place where you have lots of women on the battlefield and they are not all fighting, but they're all demonstrating the sorts of qualities that you would need to have in your soldiers. They have to be brave. They have to be a bit disciplined. They have to be able to follow orders. They have to do all of the things we would expect men on the battlefield to be able to do. Now, I said at the outset that you don't claim to have found any secret legions, but there is there is one, actually, at least, at least one you've found. And this is a legion of women, all-female regiment that operated in West Africa. Tell me about this legion, please. So, they're, well, they're a legend because they're amazing, not because they're not real. So right. they're, um, it's a, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the kingdom of Dahomey, which is now Benin in West Africa, it's crack troops. It's SAS equivalent is an all-female regiment that European observers call Amazons. They call themselves Mino or Goji, but they are really strong, powerful, capable women who are trained from birth. And the strongest girls are selected for this this regiment and are trained in it. They start out at the King's Guard and then they become crack advanced troops. So it's a classic elite troop situation. They begin as a palace guard around the king or the chief or whoever, and they then become the the elite warriors in the kingdom. Absolutely. And they are very, very effective warriors to the point that when they begin, when Europeans begin to encounter this force of women, they are quite shocked because they're so much stronger than the men. So there is a degree Really? Men? Really. Stronger than the men? Well, there's a degree of racialized and sexualized Mm. gaze that comes on this problem. But the European observers, including Richard Burton, the very famous explorer, looks at the men and says, well, the men are sort of puny and weak, and these women are Amazonian. They are huge. They are strong. They are well-muscled. They're fantastic shots. Now, these guys have been reading about the Amazons since they've been at uni. So are they projecting Amazonian fantasies somewhere onto these women? To a degree, 
But we also have their encounters with the French Foreign Legion. So during the, the scramble for Africa and colonial possessions in the, in the latter half of the 19th century, the French Foreign Legion are routinely fighting against these women. And they conveniently for us write some memoirs and they say, look, actually, you know, these women were terrifying. Do not be deceived by the fact that we were fighting against a bunch of women. They were, they were seriously frightening. And they were very poorly armed compared to the French by that stage. So they were armed with really old, very basic muskets that were really hard to aim. The French had the leading military rifling technology of the day. And they still put up an absolutely significant fight. They meet an extraordinarily sad end because the French win in Dahomey and the women and the idea of the women become this terrible curiosity. So there's troops of women who were not actually Dahomeyan warriors at all, but just troops of local women are paraded around as far as St. Petersburg and Chicago as a curiosity that you can go and see. Oh, diabolical. Why would a king want an all-female elite palace guard? That's a great question, and there are a couple of reasons for it in the Dahomey case. One is you begin by thinking they're less likely to bump you off and have a coup than an all-male palace guard might be. So it becomes a smart idea in terms of playing the gender politics of your kingdom. But what's really interesting about Dahomey is that they have a, a culture of twinning. In Dahomey's spiritualism, men and women are, are two halves of the same whole. So every position in the kingdom, including the chief eunuch, has a female counterpart. And that clearly plays into it as well, is that if you have a female version of the chief eunuch moving towards having a female version of warriors isn't as much of a stretch. Didn't Colonel Gaddafi, while we're in Africa, have an elite vanguard of women bodyguards? Were they real bodyguards or was that just some kind of cosplay that he was indulging with? Hard to say. So, yes, he has an elite group of women bodyguards. Yes, they're present for quite a long time. Maybe on the edge between the real thing and the cosplay, but he had them around him for precisely the reason that we've just discussed, which is felt safer with a group of women bodyguards than a group of men bodyguards who might be more inclined to bump him off. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. There was a soldier you write about who went by the name of James Gray. James Gray fought in the Jacobite Uprising in 1745. Then James Gray joined the Marines served all over the world, was wounded in action. It was a colourful but not wholly remarkable military career. But James Gray was a woman. Her real name was Hannah Snell. Tell me a bit about Hannah Snell slash James Gray, please. Well, so Hannah Snell joins the military, we think because, or the historical record suggests, because she was wronged by a lover and wanted to chase after him and find out what happened. And in the course of doing that, she dresses up as a man to, to follow him and find out why he's done her wrong. So she binds her breast. She binds her breast, breast, dresses up as a man, and she has, as you say, a pretty standard military career for an average soldier of the day. But what's remarkable about her is that she's a woman and she ends up getting a pension from the Royal Hospital Chelsea. She becomes a Chelsea pensioner for her services. She has a she runs a pub. She has a one-woman show. She has all of these extraordinary post-war experiences. As an out woman? Outed as a woman? Yes, right. outed as a woman. And there were lots of women like Hannah Snell. So we'll never know exactly how many women dressed up as men in order to fight because we only know about the ones that get uncovered. So Hannah gets discovered when she gets wounded, which is a common thing. You treat the wound, you discover, you look at the woman and you think, oh dear, this is, this is not what I was expecting to see. <laughs> but we don't know about the ones who don't get discovered. And we know that there are plenty of them because we have cases particularly as we move through the 19th century and military service becomes more regularized, of women coming forward to claim pensions long after their period of service and being given those pensions. 
And we also know that when women are uncovered, they usually keep serving. They're not usually sent home because they seem to be perfectly capable and perfectly good at what they're doing, and the men around them don't find it that odd. No, there must be a lot of nodding and winking going on here. I I, I mean... It's not that hard to spot a woman dressed up as a man, surely. What happens when the guys say, come on, let's, let's, let's go and urinate against that wall? What, ha- what happens then? Well, they have fake penises, Richard. So that's what happens. <laughs> they do? Yes, they have the modern equivalent of, you know, the shiwi that you can take to a rock festival. They, uh, Christian Davies is another of these women. She uses a silver straw that she uses to be able to wee standing up. Wow. We know some women have more than one <laughs> fake penis. They have a weeing fake penis, but they also have a sex fake penis because, of course, the other thing that you might need to do is go carouse at a brothel and flirt with the ladies. This is in the record, is it? This is in the record, yes. Right. And there are tons of boys in 19th century armies. So actually, you're not looking at an army which is composed of adult men. And so disguising yourself as an undernourished, reasonably scrawny woman um, with an army of boys is a lot easier than in an army of men. And Trousers are a very potent symbol of masculinity. Don't forget, we're talking about a period of time in Europe where only men wear trousers. So if you see a person wearing trousers, your brain says, those are trousers, that's a man. We know from some of the historical record when these women join navies and become Marines, they go to Tahiti. And the Tahitians' trousers do not have this symbolic value at all. So the Tahitians look at these women in trousers and go, ah, that's a woman, and spot them straight away because their brain is not tricked by this really dominant image in the same way. Did you find stories of cross-dressing female soldiers presenting as pregnant? I did indeed. So during the American Civil War, there are (laughs) more than one episode of a soldier who everyone, one case, people thought the soldier was quite unusually good looking. Right. And then was getting a bit chunky. Right, putting on the pounds. And then discovered that the soldier was in fact pregnant. Tell me the story of the famed American Revolutionary War hero, a Polish general by the name of Casimir Pulaski. I, even I've heard of this guy. Guy? Guy? Well, good that you're asking the question. So Casimir Pulaski is another one of these cases where he is the father of American cavalry warfare. He's Polish. He moves to the U.S. to fight in this great spirit of Republican idealism where you see people moving between Poland and France and the United States quite commonly to fight for Republican causes. So he's one of these, he's ideologically inspired, if you will. So he goes to the U.S. He's an expert rider. So he starts to take over Washington's cavalry troops. Very successful. Eventually, he dies at the Battle of Savannah. And there is a huge dispute and lots of questions as to how he died. There's multiple stories. But his remains are interred in Savannah. And because there's always been this question mark about the remains, again, DNA advances. Someone tests the skeleton and goes, oh, my God, Pulaski is a woman. Now, the record is less definitive for us on this point than it was with the Viking warrior because Pulaski was either female or intersex. But either way, would have had unusual physical characteristics that had to be hidden. And I think, I actually think that the reason for all of those complicated stories about how he died is because his men would have undressed him and looked at his body and gone, this is an issue. This person is not who we thought that he was. And therefore, you know, had to figure out a way to to disguise the fact that he wasn't a conventional male. So up to this point, you've shown us that women have been present fighting in uniform, cross-dressing soldiers. We've got women carrying provisions right up to the front lines, women commanding siege defences. But by the end of the 19th century, you write that women had largely disappeared from the battlefields of Europe, unless they were nurses. What happened? The first thing is militaries get better and more organised. So there's absolutely no doubt that that while this camp follower system exists, there's a much more efficient way of doing things, and that involves a properly centralised military with the ability to administer its own logistics. Yeah, hold the logistics departments, quartermasters and the like, yeah. Exactly. So when that starts to happen... People not incorrectly look at the past and say these great baggage trains of camp followers, that's unwieldy, it's old-fashioned, there's a more modern way of doing things. That modern way includes things like basic physical checks when you get conscripted. So clearly, if you... You're not going to pass your your fake penis is probably not going to get past the basic <laughs> physical check. So that door gets closed. The other thing that begins to happen is we've been talking mostly about uh, working class women, ordinary women. 
But as we move through the 19th century, we get a different understanding of femininity. And this is very pan-European, this, this understanding, which is, this is where we get the angel in the house, the, the delicate lady who is needing to be protected. And even for lower class and middle class women, that ideal is aspirational, right? This is what ladylike behavior and womanhood ought to look like. So on the one hand, you have the, the woman in the house as the, the better half the better angels of human nature, but also the fainting Victorian maiden. Exactly. And clearly, if you are a model of womanhood and the mind, the, the picture in your mind's eye is of this fainting Victorian maiden, it would be incredibly immoral to put that woman on a battlefield because dreadful things would, would happen to her. And it's no coincidence that we see the most prolonged tradition of women in combat in Russia, which of course has no middle class. So even by the time of the revolution, I think it's something like 94% of Russian society constitutes being peasants or serfs. So this, this aspirational idea of femininity isn't there so much. And if you live in a society where most women are peasants, you're going to see them chopping the head off chickens, dragging heavy loads, doing all the sorts of physical labor tasks where you wouldn't look at a woman like that and say, you know, she's incapable of fighting. Would you look at the Victorian lady in her corset expiring on the sofa? Yes, you probably would think that she was incapable of combat. So then you say the war front became a hyper-masculine place as a result, and the home front became hyper-feminine. I wonder if there was a price to pay, because we hear so many stories about, particularly after World War I, the, the men who returned came back traumatised and c- completely unable to talk to their wives about what had happened. Whereas in the past, wives had been present and they'd known what the men had gone through. There was never any need to explain to them what they'd gone through because they'd share that experience together. Yeah, I think two things happened with the end of World War I. So either men are deeply traumatized by the war, in which case not only can they not talk about it to their wives or their daughters or their sisters, you why would you inflict that experience on your wife or your daughter or your sister? But the other thing that happens, and the historian Joanna Burke has written about this quite a lot, is that War can also be the greatest experience of a man's life. So there's this exultation in the battle and even indeed in the violence. But that exultation and that sense of brotherhood in World War I does stem from an all-male space, which you then need to protect from the incursion of women for different reasons. So World War I, I think, is a very significant turning point in understanding how women disappear from the battlefield. It sort of cements this change which has been happening through the 19th century. In World War I, it never looked like the Germans were going to get to England. But it certainly looked like that in World War II. And there's a famous story that when Winston Churchill's daughter-in-law said to him, what could she do if the Nazis invaded England? He said to her, you can always go into the kitchen and grab a knife and take one with you, can't you? So again, desperation under warfare leads to a reconsideration that women can get involved and may need to be involved. Do we see this in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany, for example? Well, one of the things that we see is desperation is incredibly important part of the cocktail that allows states to consider putting women in, but they don't all do it the same way. So the Soviets are obviously under great pressure, particularly in the early phases of the German invasion, and they do mobilize women. The first lot of female soldiers that end up in the Red Army, we end up with between 800 and a million women under arms in the Red Army. But the first group of them, they just rush to the recruiting posts at the outbreak of the war, just like the men do, because they've been brought up through these communist youth groups where they're taught how to shoot, they're taught how to jump out of airplanes, they're taught how to throw grenades. And they turn up to the recruiting posts and they are allowed to join, which would be unthinkable in almost any other European context. You can imagine in Australia, if someone had turned up to the recruiting post, you'd just been patted on the head and sent home. And that would even be true in the UK or in France or in Germany. But in in Russia, they're allowed to join. And then there's a more formal mobilization later. So the Soviets end up with women in every military position you can think of. They have snipers, they have fighter pilots, they have bomber pilots, they have trench troops, they have women in command of men, they have women driving tanks, they have the whole lot. And really nobody bats an eyelid at it, except the Germans, who are very freaked out about this and see it as a sign of absolute barbarity on the part of the Soviets. Yeah, Hitler had some very decided ideas about women. He was, he had this kind of ostentatious courtliness around women, would kiss their hand and, but never thought they were worth engaging with in conversation, never wanted them to contribute to any ideas. He thought they were, again, 
again, this elevate, these elevated creatures that one uh, shouldn't really bring into that hyper-masculine world. Did, did the Nazis nonetheless bring women into fights? Well, unlike the Soviet girls, who of course are learning how to drive tractors and shooting guns and jumping out of airplanes in the interwar period, the, the, the German girls and the girls equivalent of the Hitler Youth, are, they're knitting and you know learning how to do cooking and have lots of babies. And that's all part of this Nazi ideology about womanhood. So it takes the Nazis a really long time to even consider the idea that they might need to mobilize women. And, and they're protected from manpower disaster, partly because they're engaged in hideous slave labor practices. So they don't have the, the same need to mobilize women for a long time. But oh, yes. Non-Aryan women were a different story in exactly, Hitler's mind. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But they start mobilizing boys as young as 13 and 14 before they will seriously consider mobilizing adult women. They begin to mobilize adult women in the very last stages of the war. Hitler's advisors finally persuade him to sign some orders to allow women to join that his sort of final revolutionary resistance to the Allies. But the war ends before anything really comes into play. One of the great jobs in warfare that requires total mastery of one's own feelings and enormous courage is espionage. Did you run into the great Nancy Wake in your research? Of course I ran into Nancy Wick because I find the women of the Special Operations Executive, there are numbers of ways that the British have to work their way around the fact that officially they can't have women in combat, but actually they really need women in combat in different places. And one of them is in espionage. And we find examples of British women who are commanding groups of thousands of French resistance fighters who are mostly men, but not entirely men, um, in the French countryside uh, fighting against the Germans after the D-Day landing. So these are women, one of whom was described as the best shot that her directing staff had ever seen when she was on the training course. And Nancy Wake, very famously uh, Australian, is working in France throughout the war for British intelligence and ends up leading groups of men and also ends up, they have a female, they catch a female saboteur and the, the men are afraid to execute her. And Nancy Wake says, look, well, it's got to be done. I'll just do it. And so she goes and, and does it herself. So these are women who are completely capable of fighting, but they are denied even the view that they might be fighting. So Pearl Witherington, who was the fantastic shot, she's commanding two or 3,000 different French resistance fighters. And at the end of the war, she's offered a civilian honor because that was all women were eligible for. And she said, there was nothing civil about what I did in the war. And she turned it down because she felt correctly that she should have been given a military honor for her work. In the post-war years, when we get up to the 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, there's the growing movement to have women being permitted to serve fully in combat roles in warfare. You quote the conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly in the United States who gave testimony to the US Congress, and I'm quoting her here. She said, The push to repeal the laws which exempt women from military combat duty must be the strangest of all aberrations indulged in by what has become known as the women's liberation movement. The very idea of women serving in military combat is so unnatural, so ugly, that it almost sounds like a death wish for our species. Now, she's very much on the right there, and she's very much opposed to contemporary feminism. But were there many of her feminist contemporaries who would have agreed with her on that? I don't think they would have agreed with the way that she said it. The feminist movement did not push for female integration in combat to the degree which we might expect. So while they wouldn't have agreed with Phyllis Schlafly that this was some sort of aberration, they certainly weren't burning their bras in support of the idea either. And that's because there's a very strong correlation, especially in the U.S., between the feminist movement and the pacifist movement. So the idea that you should be encouraging women to fight sort of goes against the idea you should be discouraging war. This was not something the feminist movement felt like expending their limited resources on when there were other battles to fight. There are some exceptions to this, and I think as time moves through the the 70s and 80s in particular, things do begin to shift, but we see much less support for it from the feminist movement than you might expect. But what starts to happen in the military is that militaries in Western societies cannot ignore the wider push towards gender equality, which is happening. So they have to start letting more and more women into the military. So after World War II, every Western military you can think of has some sort of legislative provision which bans women from combat and allows them to constitute a very tiny percentage of total forces. In Australia, my favorite fun fact is that you could stay in the military after you were married with your husband's permission and if you had a special talent. 
and otherwise you had to come out. But those pressures, um, the feminist movement begins to erode that. So we get more women in the military, but generally they're not allowed in combat. In the early 1980s, the first Terminator movie came out. And one of my favourite scenes in that movie is towards the end of the movie, Sarah Connor's trying to seduce the dude from the future who's come to protect her from Arnie the Terminator. And they're in a motel room and she <laughs> she sidles up to him and she goes, the women in the future, what, what are they like? And he goes, good fighters. And in James Cameron's movies, this is an entirely serious question, you do see women integrated in the Marines. In Aliens, the sequel, you do see Sarah Connor as the full-on military hero in the second Terminator movie. I wonder if that led a change, helped lead a change in perception or reflected it. This was positing a future where women absolutely were part of the, and shared the sense of esprit de corps in the military with men. I find it fascinating that we seem to have no difficulty with this idea in our future imaginaries or even our past imaginaries. Like look at Game of Thrones, where you don't have that many women fighters, but you have Brienne of Tarth and her giant sword, right? So we have all kinds of ways that we're able to imagine in a fictional universe, that women do this sort of stuff as the norm. In fact, I think it's you're hard-pressed to think of a sci-fi thing that's been made after the 80s which doesn't have women in combat in it. Starship Troopers, yeah. The yeah. women are right throughout that Battlestar as well. Galactica, yep. uh, Alien, I think we, we mm. talked about as well. So th- this is a perfectly normal thing to do. And I think it suggests that in our mind's eye, equality just hasn't hit yet. And that's why... Our women can't do it, but women in the future can, because the future is a more egalitarian place than than the present where we live now. In the more recent wars that have taken place in the Gulf, in Afghanistan and in Iraq, often in those zones, it was never very clear where the front line was. I wonder what that meant for the whole idea of excluding women from combat zones, when you have perhaps nearly every soldier as a potential combatant? Well, the front line and the very idea of the existence of a front line, that is the most potent weapon the military has to keep women out of combat, is the existence of a front line behind which you can keep women safe and in front of which you have people doing fighting. And you're totally right. So by the time we hit modern warfare, warfare from the 1990s onwards, that front line no longer exists. And all of these women, courtesy of the feminist movement and gender equality in wider society, you have lots of women in the military. So they are driving trucks, they're doing all kinds of things. But once you have a battlefield where there's no front line, then inevitably that woman who's driving the truck, who's armed, if she gets shot at, she's hardly going to be like, oh, sorry, excuse me, I'm not allowed to be a combatant. I will just sit here while you shoot at me. In fact, of course, they shoot back. So as early as the Persian Gulf War and the American case, where they end up with quite a lot of women who are sort of accidentally on the front line, that really pushes some degree of change in the U.S. military. So that's what allows women to become fighter pilots for the first time. But certainly the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan just blow open any distinction that we have about whether or not women are or are not engaging in combat because they very clearly are. They're getting awarded. They are getting, actually, military awards for valor because they do have to engage the enemy in a firefight regularly. And a lot of commanders on the ground I think people are often surprised when they hear me speak and when I've done my research is that they don't have any problem with this because what they've seen is women fighting alongside men and it actually being basically a non-issue. Female participation in combat, fighting and dying alongside men has been more or less achieved. There's been in most of the world's major militaries, apart from Russia, though, it seems even today, (laughs) which is kind of interesting under the circumstances. This seems like a kind of a grim form of equality. What do you think nonetheless is achieved by women now being able to serve in any kind of combat role alongside men? Yeah, I think it's really important to pause and recognise the cost, right? So I think that there is a very strong feminist argument that that all forms of warfare are inherently dangerous for society. They're very patriarchal. They are, they are it's a form that we want to avoid. And that, that the costs of women who are having to be the barrier breakers in this context are immense. And I think that we can't downplay that. Like the, both men and women, for example, experience a much higher rate of sexual assault in the military than they do out of it. That's both men and women. So the military is not always the healthiest of institutions, and it's very costly for women in particular to break down these barriers. But when I was researching my book, I I began to shift my opinion about this a little bit, and that I think that 
It is impossible to see how the military is going to become a more egalitarian place unless we begin to see more women in it and unless we allow women to take on all the roles in it. It's going to take a long time. I mean, these are institutions that are steeped in tradition where the whole point of joining the institution is you are trained in every aspect of supporting it. So change in that type of institution is going to be really slow. But I keep coming back to if you say that women are incapable of fighting, you are sending an unbelievably profound message to women about what their capabilities are. And it's the most profound message you can think of. It's to say, you cannot do the thing which is essential to looking after your own life and the life of the people you love and the society around you. We have to do that for you because you're not capable. And I think unless we can unpick that, it's going to be very hard to develop a strong sense of gender equality, not just in the military, but in society at large as well. You've written extensively about military situations in the past. You've written about mercenaries. You've been on this program talking about that. You've written a book of military history here, effectively. I don't think you can read, let alone write about military history without wondering, could I do this? Could I pick up a gun and fight? A great many of us, most of us have this deeply embedded, profound taboo against taking another person's life. And you wonder, you try to imagine as best you can what circumstances in which you might be prepared to do that in warfare, as terrible as they are, but the mind sort of tends to go to that place. Does your mind go to that place? Yeah, it does actually, um, because I think I would make a really bad contemporary modern soldier. I'm very impressed with all of those contemporary modern soldiers out there who are listening, but I'm quite naughty and I don't respond very well to discipline and I'm not very good at following the rules. And I think that would probably rule me out of a lot of conventional yeah, military Yeah, what about service. a completely murderous evil situation but where, can, yeah, like 30 years war type situation? Absolutely. I think that one of the things that psychologically we we struggle with all the time is what are the circumstances when we would be brave enough to act? And I think we would all like to think that we would. But I think that if given the opportunity and that the choice was my children die or I fight, I would absolutely fight. And in those sorts of contexts, time and time again, what we've seen when women are given the opportunity to fight because it's a rebel movement, because they're defending their children, because they've happened to be on a battlefield, they respond exactly the same way as men. Some of them are brave. Some of them are rubbish. Some of them are hugely heroic and perform deeds that you can't even imagine. And some of them just do it as an everyday job. But I think that at bottom, this is an area where men and women are actually alike. It's a fascinating subject, Sarah. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Percy's book is called Forgotten Warriors. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.